Good morning, everybody. We're going to wrap up our series this morning entitled Rising Strong. And then uh, next week, we'll begin a brand new series out of the Book of Romans. And so we're going to just kind of start from the beginning and work our way through all the way until Easter. So it'll be a nine-week series as we kind of walk through the Book of Romans. Uh, And Romans, for me, is like Paul's deepest letter of here's his theology. But the title of it is called Segregation, uh, which will make a whole lot more sense, I think, next week. But uh, be, be here next week. You bring your Bibles if you want to. We'll still put the scripture up on the screen, uh, but as we kind of walk through the Paul's letter to Romans. Um, and then Angie, her comments at communion, like you know, this, that's why she's the director of our ministries administration, and um, I washed my sheets yesterday, um, <laughs> because I have a digital planner, is what I'm just, I mean, I'm just, just kind of, just kind of want to throw that out there. Hey, and after this service, we're having what we call the dating game, uh, and it's not for singles, like trying to uh, find others, it's, uh, it's for those of you who are, no, I get it, like we could do that some other time, this is for those of you who've been hanging out here, and there's quite a few of you who've been kind of, you've showed up now over the last couple of weeks, maybe the last couple of months, and you're kind of looking for a new church, and this might be the church for you, you're still not really sure, so we're kind of dating. And so what the, what the dating game does is it kind of, this is our story. This is the heartbeat of Livingstone's church. This is our mission, our vision, this is what God has called us to. And in it, you can ask whatever question that you might bring with you. We kind of share, here's the life of the church, how to get involved, all those sorts of things. And so I highly recommend it. It's just like you should go into all relationships with your eyes wide open, even relationships with churches. And so I just I know at the end, you'll have a much better sense of, I think this is the church for me, or nope, I need to keep looking around. Because we recognize we're not everybody's flavor. We get that, and so we can kind of help you with that. But you are invited. Even if you haven't signed up, you're still free to come. Even if you're thinking, I don't have lunch plans and I'm hungry, we'll feed you lunch. So it's back here in the community center uh, where the kids' wing is uh, after this service. And then uh, we'll take care of your kids. We've got child care if you need it as well. Now, I've been recommending this book uh, the last two weeks. And let me do so again this morning because I stole her title. So Brene Brown wrote a book called Rising Strong. It is a fantastic book. You can get it for $12 at Amazon, either the paperback or Kindle. It's like $500 worth of therapy just at a $12 book in your hands. It's great. But if you, in case you've missed any of the last two messages, you could go to livingstones.cc, click on the message tabs, and you can listen to them there. But by way of review, let me share with you, with you what you missed if you've not been here over the last two weeks. And I begin with this proposition... We will all have a fall, and we will all fail at something in life. Now, my guess is just about everybody in the room can already testify to moments where you have failed at something, you have taken a fall, and I would like to say to you, the good news is you're done, but the truth of the matter is between now and the day of your death, you are most likely going to have another failure or another fall ahead of you, and it it happens to all of us, in fact, often. And sometimes they're the big things. It's the divorce or the termination from your job, all the way down to the smaller things of you blew your diet this week or you made a promise to your kid that you'd help them with some assignment and then you totally forgot. But whenever we fall and we're kind of laying there face down, and you know that, that gross feeling, right, a failure that comes over you, that, that fall? Like most of us don't have that, well, whatever, just a life lesson. I mean, that's, most of us don't do that. Most of us like after the fall or failure, we're laying there on the ground. You've got 100 different options available to you on what to do next. But only a few will actually lead to us being brave enough to feel our way up, to be willing to show up and to be seen with absolutely no guarantee of outcome, and ultimately, even because of the fall, to rise strong, stronger and better than ever before. Because what our initial instinct will be, like when you when you experience that fall or failure, your initial instinct will be to run to very powerful defensive mechanisms. And listen, we all have them. 
And, and they're different for each one of us, but there is a defensive mechanism that will rise up in you and you'll run to it seeking safety. Because our defensive mechanisms will usually start spinning a story for our ego's sake, a story of why we really aren't to blame for our fall or our failure. And this is where we hide and where we pretend and where we hustle. It is the story that we are telling ourselves. And our first draft of the story is rarely the truth. The first draft of the story that you tell yourself after a fall or after a failure is rarely the truth. If you want to know the truth, you will have to lean into the vulnerability and the shame and the regret and the weakness and get really curious about your emotions and thoughts and behaviors. And we call this the messy middle as we go from a fall to rising strong. You're going to have to rumble with your story, as Brene Brown says, to get really curious about your own emotions and thoughts and behaviors and really start to challenge the assumptions of your first draft of the story that you're telling yourself, determining what is truth and what is just self-protection, what needs to change if we want to lead a more wholehearted life. And as I say that, I know that doesn't sound particularly profound, like, ooh, get curious about your emotions and your behaviors and thoughts, but the truth is, most of us, we never do. We so quickly want to move on, we rarely ask questions. So these are the questions we proposed last week, three of them here. One is, what more do I need to learn and understand about this situation? Like leaning into the vulnerability of the fall and the regret and the shame and the guilt and the weakness and all that comes with it, asking the questions, what do I know objectively? And what assumptions am I making in this moment? And then number two, what more do I need to learn and understand about the other people that are in the story? What additional information do I need? And what questions or clarifications might be helpful? And perhaps the most important question is the third one here. What more do I need to learn and understand about myself? Like what's really underneath my response? Now the spin, the story you're spinning is like, well, they deserve it. That's why I did what I did. You need to ask yourself, yeah, but why did you respond like that? And why did you say that? What was really underneath that? What am I really feeling? And what part did I play? And so we've used uh, Peter's betrayal of Jesus as sort of a backdrop uh, to explore these issues of really kind of leaning into your vulnerability. So if you missed it, you can go online and, and, and hear it. But as we conclude this morning, I want you to step into an imaginary world for just a moment. And it's a little depressing, but we'll, we'll power through it. I want you to imagine that this is your last day on earth. Like this is it. Tonight in your sleep, you will, very peacefully, no doubt, die. And I want you to imagine that your life story, like the real story of your life, not some fictitious betrayal, is going to be made into a movie based on your life, like your real life story. Now, obviously Brad Pitt will be playing the part of Sam in the movie that's to come. But in the movie, let me ask you, how is your movie? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it inspirational? Is it captivating? Is it boring? At the end, do people want their money back and write a terrible review on Rotten Tomatoes? I just picture like my life story. Cheese, the real life story of Sam Barrington, and I think it's like 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right now, you are living each day contributing another sentence, and paragraph, and page, or even chapter to your life story, and when you die, that book will have a the end attached. Most likely at a time you didn't suspect, and that will be it. It becomes the story of your life, a completed novel, no longer in process or even in an editing stage. My question is, how's the story? 
And now, I get to see this on a more intimate level than most people because of the number of funerals that I officiate, and even in the process, I meet with the family, and I want to talk about the, their loved one who had just passed away and tell me stories and give me their life story. And it's amazing the diversity of stories that you hear, all the way from wonderful novels of somebody's life filled with just tears and laughter and all sorts of things to sometimes just barely a blurb that wouldn't captivate anyone's attention. And I know at least for those of us who are following Jesus, Jesus tells us that he came to bring us abundant life, a full life. He'll say this in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. And then Jesus qualifies it, not like just any kind of life, but life to the full. And some translations will say abundant life. I would be curious if you were to die tonight and the novel of your life was finished, would we read it and conclude, man, what an abundant life, or what a full life. So don't answer out loud, but just once again, just for a moment, consider if you died tonight and your life story came to an end, how would the movie of your life turn out? And after the first service, my dad came up to me and said, it's going to be really awkward if somebody dies tonight. And they're going to be like, see, he told you. Like, it's going to be awkward. So I need you all to live until next week at least so we can move on. In December of uh, 1998, so it's been many years, uh, we had a murder-suicide here in the church that took place. And uh, they had two sons, both of them. One was just out of high school. One was still in high school. And I was going to officiate the funeral, this murder-suicide. I was just 26 years old. I'd only been in ministry for a little over a year. And it was December. It was like right before Christmas time, which just elevated how tragic it was in terms of what we were walking through. And being a nervous wreck in the face of that experience, I remember I called uh, Dr. Charles Seibert, who was a professor of mine uh, in graduate school. And I just called and said, listen, I, I don't know what to say. I don't like, there's no way to spin this positively. There's no way to paint a happy face on this or... And he gave me good advice. But perhaps the best advice I got was from an older pastor friend who lived in Austin, Texas, who had heard about the situation. I mean, it was on the news. I mean, and, and he called me. And he had walked through a murder-suicide. And his advice to me was, um, everyone's going to be thinking about the last chapter. Like, that's what everybody's fixated on, the last chapter. And you're going to have to tell the story that's broader, that's longer. That sometimes we have a movie that's excellent, but the last scene leaves us going, ugh. Or you read a book that really is a good book, but it ends in a way that you kind of go, ugh. That's sort of what it's like in this murder-suicide. So you have to tell the bigger story, that the end chapter doesn't necessarily trump the whole story. And I walked away and thought, yeah, I, I like that. that. That's helpful to me to tell the whole life story that sometimes the last chapter doesn't always negate the whole story. But over the years, as I thought about that, I thought, except for kind of, sometimes it does. Like when I say the name Bernie Madoff to you, like what comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's not like some middle portion of his life where like, oh, he's a father and like doing a good business. Like all we think about is fraud and ripping people off in terms of their uh, uh, pensions and those sorts of things. Or the other day, my son, uh, Caleb, he came up to me and he's playing a song. Uh, he goes, hey, dad, you know who this is? And I mean, it sounded good, good voice. The music was great. I go, no, I have no idea. He goes, it's Charles Manson. <laughs> I'm thinking... Huh? <laughs> did you know Charles Manson was a musician? Did you know that? Yeah, so a few of you did. Like, I, I had no idea. And then my next thought is, why is my son listening to Charles Manson? And it was kind of a whole other thought to it, whatever. So, some failures or some 
falls are so colossal, it does feel like it negates and trumps everything else. It becomes the story that undoes all other story, stories. And when I think back to the Apostle Peter and his betrayal of Jesus, like if I say out loud, hey, when, I think when you think of the Apostle Peter, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Most likely will not be, oh, he betrayed Jesus. That's just not the first thing that comes to our mind. And the reason why is even though that actually happened in his life, afterwards what happened? He got back up. And he became an amazing leader of the early church, planting churches all over the Roman Empire, being a premier leader of Jesus' movement. But when I say Judas to you, what comes to mind? It's just a betrayer. There's nothing else. Like, that's it. Like, his final moment sort of kind of encapsulates his whole life, and it's hard for us to think of, oh, I bet Judas was a good son. He probably took care of those. Like, no, all we can think about is, oh, he betrayed Jesus. And I can't help but wonder, see, his story ends there because he went on to commit suicide. But what if... Judas would have leaned into his story of failure and entered into the vulnerability and the guilt and the shame and the weakness and got back up. And what if out of that, he too became a great leader of the early church? Would we think of Judas' story as much we do in Peter's story, even though they both betrayed Jesus? When you have a fall or a failure, it is in this moment that you want to think, This can't be the end of my story. This can't be the last chapter of my life story. I can't let this be the final scene of my movie. And what you'll have to do is enter into a revolution, so to speak, that you're going to change up the narrative and the plot of your own story, that you're going to get up and you're going to write a new ending, a braver story to change how you engage with the world. And you have more control over your life story than you might think. And we tend to so quickly yield control over our life story to other people. And so we yield it to our upbringing. Well, that's just how I was raised. Or what our parents did or didn't do to us. And, or we yield it to our economic status or to our present circumstances. We have a host of excuses we keep telling ourselves, and they are the stories we are telling ourselves as to why we really couldn't go for our dreams or pursue the life we really wanted to live or experience abundance. But after you spend the first draft and after you rumble with the story and come up with the true narrative of who you really are and what you really did and what you're really thinking and feeling, then it's time to be resolute to write a new ending, a braver story, even one that integrates our falls and failures. Renee Brown will say in her book, the irony is that we attempt to disown our difficult stories to appear more whole or more acceptable, but our wholeness, even our Wholeheartedness actually depends on the integration of all of our experiences, including the falls. When we fall or fail, our job is not to deny the story, just to defy the ending. Yes, this is what happened. This is my truth. And I will choose how this story ends, and I will make this failure or fall a defining moment of my life. And typically, any story or a fall or failure that goes on to a rising strong story, includes repentance. Now, don't get lost in this churchy word, repentance. It feels like it has a lot of baggage, like you picture somebody up on a soapbox with a megaphone yelling that everybody's going to burn in hell forever. Just suspend that for just a moment, and and let me explain what repentance really is. Now, when you fall, consider all the options that are before you. One is just to run, and that is a defensive mechanism that that each of us kind of has, as if it just never happened, and to run away from any need to be vulnerable or to lean into our shame or regret or weakness. And what happens is you become a fugitive of your own life story. 
And fugitives typically have a miserable existence. They're always paranoid. They're always on the run. They're always hiding. They're always pretending, always hustling. That's why I think fugitives, after a while, they just turn themselves into the law, even knowing they're going to jail because they just can't take the life of being a fugitive any longer. You cannot rise strong when you're on the run. And that's why the end result of this work of getting curious, like when we rumble with our story and get curious about our, 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 our emotions and our thoughts and our behaviors, the end of that story, that process of that new ending requires repentance. And this is Jesus' first message that we have recorded in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus' main message as he begins is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what Jesus means is if your life is headed in this direction, but God is over here, you just turn around and go towards God. Like, that's repentance. It's just a U-turn in life. I was headed this direction, away from God, and now I'm headed towards God. That's what it means to repent. And for most of us, we kind of have a negative connotation to that, but I want you to know that God loves repentance. Like, Jesus will tell us a story in Luke chapter 15. There's actually three stories in the chapter that Jesus tells to give us a glimpse of God's heart. One's of a lost coin, the one's of a lost sheep, and the other's a prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. And the whole point is this. Anytime you turn towards God, you don't ever have to worry about God as there in the driveway like, mm-hmm, really? You're coming back now after what you did and kind of laying out all the things that you did wrong and all the ways like, and you want to come back now? You never have to worry about that. And what you get a picture of in Luke chapter 15 is a father who has been waiting for you the entire time. And there's a story of the prodigal son where uh, the son basically says to his dad, I want my inheritance now, which is kind of like saying, I wish you were dead. And he doesn't have to, but the father actually gives him the money, and then he goes off and blows it in a bunch of crazy parties and wild living. And then in his poverty, he thinks to himself, maybe I can go back home. Like, not as a son. I've, I've blown that, but maybe as a servant. So he's got the speech he's about to give to his dad, and he practices it. He comes home, and he sees his dad, who's been waiting for him every day in the driveway. And he runs to his son, and his son gives the speech, and the father doesn't acknowledge the speech at all. All he knows is, my son who was lost has now been found. I have to have a party. And what Jesus is trying to say to us is, you don't ever have to worry about a God and a father who the moment you turn towards him in repentance is awaiting you with arms folded and a skeptical, really? But rather a father who's been open arms in his driveway waiting for you to come home the whole time. It's the picture of repentance. And if you're going to rise strong, you cannot do so after a fall or a failure without passing through it. And repentance is more than just stop doing that. We just got like, a, yeah, don't do that anymore. Because rarely do we just stop doing something that we intend to do or are inclined to do or desire to do or that we've done for a very long time and thus it's an ingrained behavior without first understanding why I did that to begin with. And rumbling with our story after a fall and failure is what allows us ultimately to repent. And so you begin to think through, oh, the reason why I do that is because my greatest fear in life is being alone. And so I keep choosing these unhealthy relationships because I'd rather be in an unhealthy relationship than to face my greatest fear, which is being alone. Then you have to ask yourself, you've got to rumble with that story. Well, why are you afraid of being alone? And what would it look like to not be afraid anymore? And how do you overcome that fear? And when I'm not afraid, what kind of a relationship would I actually want? You have to picture your life story. You don't want at the end of it for your movie or for, yeah, she lived her life in a series of unhealthy relationships because she was afraid of being alone and she chose guys who would and then fill in the blank. That's not the story you want your kids to remember. 
It's not the story you want to end with the therapist. You don't want that to be the final chapter. It's for you to say now, as you rumble with all that, you know what? I'm going to get up and change the narrative of my story. And I'm going to enter into a plot twist that I'm going to write a different ending, one that is brave and allows me to engage better with the world around me, and then text that idiot boyfriend of yours, we're done. Get out of here, don't even message me back. That's repentance. And you can't rise strong without it. There's another story in the scriptures about a colossal fall. I'm sure you're familiar with it. King David, remember the story of David and Bathsheba? It's a colossal fall on King David's part. Just in case you're unfamiliar with the story, let me, let me share it with you. Uh, the Bible says that King David, uh, this is the time where kings are off at war with their armies, but for some reason, David's not where he's supposed to be, and he's actually home in Jerusalem in his palace, and he's on the roof of his palace. And from that vantage point, he's able to see into even other kind of more private spaces and areas, and he notices a beautiful woman who's bathing herself, which means she's naked, and he sees her, and he thinks to himself, yeah, that's what's going on in David's mind, right? And here's what else David knows. I'm king. And as king, I can have anything that I want. And at the moment, what he wants is this woman who's bathing who happens to be Bathsheba. So he summons her. Now, you've got to understand the, the day and age. It isn't like, um, this is like some romance that comes down. And there's like, it's more than just like some sort of affair or adultery. Like, he's the king. And I think a legitimate case could be made that she really has no choice in the matter. Like, you could push even the language of rape to some extent for King David. And so Bathsheba gets summoned. David sleeps with Bathsheba. But there's a problem. She's married to a guy named Uriah, who happens to be in David's army. But after the uh, incident of David sleeping with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant. So David's starting to panic as the king. Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. Like, this is not going to go well. He's trying to hide. He's trying to hustle and hide and pretend. So what he does is he summons Uriah from the battlefields to come on home because he's thinking to himself, he'll come home, he'll be in the mood, he'll sleep with his wife, and then when it's found out that she's pregnant, they'll just think it's Uriah's, and I get off right? Completely clean. Well, Uriah, because of his integrity, he's a man of honor. He, when he comes home, he refuses to sleep with his wife and enjoy not only her, but all the other pleasures because he knows his fellow soldiers are still out fighting, and it would be right for him to come home and enjoy that when no one else could, so he doesn't. Well, of course, David freaks out because his, his, the story that he's spinning is, is, messed, is getting messed up. So he has another plan. He actually writes a letter to the commander of the army, and he sends it sealed with Uriah, to give to the commander, and inside the sealed letter is the instructions that to engage with the enemy in battle, and at the height of the battle, to have everyone but Uriah pull back, and we'll leave Uriah out there vulnerable and alone. That's exactly what happens, and Uriah is put to death on the battlefield because of this move. And so David then begins to think to himself, well, see, now she no longer has a husband, so she could become my wife, no one will know the difference, and so that's exactly what takes place. And so he's spitting the story and he's this fall and this failure, and he thinks, okay, good, until you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So you see this? Like, like pet. Like just. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So what happens is the rich man, he's got all sorts of sheep and cattle. 
But when he gets a guest that comes in, rather than taking one of his own sheep, he takes the only sheep that the poor man owns. It's sort of like a daughter. He kills it and serves it to the traveler. So, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives to your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, before the sword will never, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have showed utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, the New Testament will refer to David as a man after God's own heart, and in it, he experiences a fall and a failure. And as soon as it happens, he begins to spin a story full of hiding and pretending and hustling and big time. It goes so far as to get a guy killed, but the truth is, he is telling himself a story. It isn't the truth. And he's on the run in regards to getting away with it until God sends the prophet Nathan and David is forced to have to confront his story. What happens is David's going to have to step into his shame and his regret and his weakness and his vulnerability. He will never rise strong spinning these stories. And so he does. And this is where I wish we had more about each biblical character and all that they went through and all they were thinking. But we do have recorded in the Psalms the first psalm that David will actually write out of this incident. After he's been confronted by Nathan, after he confesses and repents, David will sit down and he'll write this. It's Psalm 51. It says this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, and against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart of God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Regret is a tough but fair teacher. There's a movement now to live life with no regrets. And I hear that all the time. I got no regrets. I don't regret anything. What I'd say is, I don't think there's such a thing. Or at least don't trust anyone who says they have lived their life and never had any regrets. To live without regret is to believe you have nothing to learn or no amends to make and no opportunity to be braver with your life. To have no regret is to say you've never repented. Now, in a fall and in failure, shame is always right at hand, and that's a different deal. All the animal lovers in the room, look at that. (laughs) Or polar bear. There's a big difference between I screwed up, which produces guilt, and I am a screw-up, which is shame-talking. The one is acceptance of our imperfect humanity. The other is basically an indictment on our very existence. And for the perfectionists in the room, when your perfectionism is driving your life, I promise you shame will always be riding shotgun. And I know in the midst of a fall and a failure, we tend to have this independent, self-reliant, rugged, individualistic spirit. It's the American way but it is a lie. You will need connections with others. You will need the help of others to get you back up. And the way that happens is for them to begin to help you pass that first stormy first draft, that first story you tell yourselves. And a therapist could be great at helping speak back questions and feedback in regards to the story that you're telling yourself. And when you have connections with other people, that someone who's willing to encourage you and to speak truthfully to you, when we hit a crisis of a fall or a failure, what happens is we quickly want to go to one of two extremes. One is uh, over-functioning. And when you're caught in over-functioning, what happens is, I won't feel anything in this, I'll just do. I don't need help, I help. And so you could spot an over-functioner real quick, like, When there's a death in the family, there'll be somebody, some sibling that will rise up and take charge. Like they're in charge of everything. They're keeping the to-do list. They're making all the all the arrangements. They're doing everything. Like that's the they're the over over functioner that's trying not to feel by doing. That they don't need help. They help. And on the other end is the under functioning. (laughs) This is the (laughs) I won't function. I'll just fall apart. I don't help. I need help. Now, you probably grew up in a home that's one way, like I grew up in a very over-functioning home where you don't ask for help, like you don't ask for help. In fact, when I first moved here uh, 21 years ago, new preacher, new church, um, you know who came and helped me move into my new home with my family and who came? Nobody. You know why? Because my dad was in charge. <laughs> and my dad, we don't need help. Like, like, I don't know what that is in us, that does not, and I totally get that. Um, which would be a problem when he's really old and he's in a diaper that needs change, like it's going to be a real problem for him. But fortunately, he's got a daughter. Fortunately, he's got a daughter. I think he's going to take care of, great care of him in that state. <laughs> you get the money in the end? <laughs> I'm willing to work that out in negotiation. In terms of... Sometimes in a 
fall or a failure, you need help. And when you judge yourself for needing help, like when that voice begins to say you're weak or you're dependent or you're stupid, what you actually do is you judge those that you are helping. When you attach value to giving help, you attach value then on needing help. And the danger of tying your self-worth to being a helper is feeling shame when you have to ask for help. And offering help is courageous and compassionate, but so is asking for help. And a place where you can find connection and to help back up after a fall or failure will be very important. And I would just offer you a couple things here even at the church this week. Uh, inside your bulletin is an insert for groups, uh, and so we've been talking about it for weeks, but they actually begin this week. So if you haven't signed up for one, there's lots of different days of the week, different leaders, different topics, formats, those sorts of things. They could be great places of connection that should you experience a fall or a failure, you'll have people around you who will love you and encourage you and support you and help you get back up to give you the feedback that you need that that won't be your final story or chapter, but rather just the beginning of a much braver story that you are in the process of writing. And the other thing that's going on is tomorrow night is Celebrate Recovery. They begin a brand new session, all brand new curriculums at 7 o'clock. The hardest thing would just be having the courage to walk in just in this room, but once you do, you will find a community of people who will love you, will be the most non-judgmental people you'll ever find, and will be able to support you and surround you to help you get back up should you experience a fall or a failure. And it is the messy middle. Act one was this, and then the fall. You're trying to get to act three, which is you're rising strong, but you can't get to act three without walking through act two, which is always a messy middle. I wanted to share with you, it's a testimony that uh, we put together a couple years ago for our 10th birthday as a Livingstones church, but it's a perfect illustration, not only of Celebrate Recovery, gets props in it, but of this idea of, yeah, you got to work through a messy middle before you can get to your rising strong. So take a look at this. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. <laughs> my father was a borderline alcoholic. I love my mother dearly, but she spent a lot of her energy trying to placate him so he didn't abuse us. Um, the oldest of four kids, and uh, we were a church-going family, but in no means would I ever consider us a Christian family. We were Sunday morning Christians. And the church was very unlike Living Stones, whereas uh, we acknowledge that, that we are all broken to some degree. They looked for perfection there. I grew up with an idea of God that he was looking for perfection and that I was a constant disappointment because I didn't live up to what I was taught. As soon as I got to be independent, I walked away from church and I walked away from what I saw as religion because what I saw and what I experienced growing up, I didn't want to have anything more to do with that. I always believed in God and I, I was always afraid of Him, but it didn't stop me from living life the way I wanted to, which was not good. I was not a very nice person, very different from what I am now. As far as relationships go, you know, I. I went through a lot of them and you know they were for the most part just superficial. My first real relationship was probably with my ex-wife. We'd been together for a couple years before we got married and we were married for nine. During that time we started a family, blessed with two great kids, but we lost um, several babies during that time. That took a toll on our marriage. The fact that I was an ass didn't help. 
and um, we, we started to grow apart. So, December 2012, I came to this church for the first time because uh, my life was in crisis. I ran my marriage and my life into a wall because I had been unfaithful. And she found out about it. And um, just drove it off the cliff. So, came to Living Stones, kind of a Hail Mary. The first few times I came here, you know, tattoos and t-shirts and a band. A little bit of culture shock. One of the biggest things that I noticed about coming to Living Stones was Sam was very passionate and the way he presented God's Word was alive. I mean, I could actually feel it. I don't know how to describe it, but it was, it was almost as if God grabbed me. And I'd never felt that before. When Sam would describe God, it was almost as if he were a real person. So after I'd been attending for a while, and uh, through the course of my ex and I trying to reconcile, um, I learned some things about myself, both through talking to Sam, praying, getting closer to God for the first time in my life, and um, going to a marriage counselor. One of the things that I learned about myself is that I am I'm an addict. From there, I became involved in Celebrate Recovery. Going through that program with Jim Ruth, it really helped me learn who I was, who I truly was, not how I saw myself, but what I could be. And um, new ways to think, new ways to act, new ways to respond to stress. I can honestly tell you that the man you see sitting in front of you right now is not the one who first walked through these doors three years ago. My marriage did end. Um, and with God's help, I rode out that crisis. I rode out that storm. Is life perfect right now? No. But he has been faithful to me, and I am thankful for this church. I'm thankful for Sam. I'm thankful for Jim Ruth and Celebrate Recovery. I'm thankful because God has put a new woman in my life who accepts me for what I am and what I'm becoming. That's the uh, messy middle from an act one to an act three. Sometimes it takes connection and community to help in that. But I want to close, and if you wouldn't mind, let's just stand together. Um, there's a manifesto that Brene Brown has at the end of this book, Rising Strong. She calls the manifesto of the brave and brokenhearted. I just thought I would read it over us and give you encouragement that if you find yourself in a fall or a failure, that you can rise strong and write a new ending to your life story that's braver and better than you ever imagined. It goes like this. There's no greater threat to the critics and cynics and fear mongers than those of us who are willing to fall because we have learned how to rise. With skinned knees and bruised hearts, we choose owning our stories of struggle over hiding, over hustling, over pretending. When we deny our stories, they define us. When we run from struggle, we are never free. So we turn towards truth and look it in the eye. 
We will not be characters in our stories. Not villains, not victims, not even heroes. We are the authors of our lives. We write our own daring endings. We craft love from heartbreak. Compassion from shame. Grace from disappointment. Courage from failure. Showing up is our power. Story is our way home. Truth is our song. We are the brave and brokenhearted. And we are rising strong. Amen.